I have the pleasure of introducing the organizer and respondent of our second plenary, Stephanie Ann Frampton. Stephanie is a classicist and scholar of the history of media in antiquity based at MIT, where she has worked as a professor of literature since 2012. Stephanie has published widely on the intersections of material culture and literary imagination in the ancient Roman world. She is the author of the forthcoming book, Alphabetic Order, the Roman Alphabet, and the Material Culture of Literature in the Ancient World, which I'm told is a capacious work of scholarship that is nothing short of magnificent. <laughs> Stephanie is the recipient of the American Academy's Rome Prize, among many other awards, and is the inaugural president of the Andrew W. Mellon Society of Fellows in Critical Bibliography at Rare Book School. Please join me in welcoming Stephanie Ashton. So thank you all for being here. It's been an amazing couple of days, and I have the real honor of uh, hosting uh, two uh, really distinguished and visionary scholars in the field of digital preservation and visualization, the intersections between the digital, the electronic, the computational, uh, and the humanistic. Um, and uh, Drs. Nancy McGovern and Brent Seals um, are new to this crowd, um, and uh, likewise, uh, we are new to them, and so I hope it will be a source of productive conversation uh, and an opportunity to enact some of the interdisciplinarity that we've had on display so much over the course of these couple of days. Um, I'll introduce each one in turn, and then uh, each will give his or her presentation. Uh, I have some remarks to follow at the end, and then we'll turn it over for questions um, uh, and uh, interrogations, uh, and hopefully a, a, a lively conversation with all of you. Um, so I'll begin by introducing uh, Nancy McGovern, our first speaker, who is an expert on digital curation and preservation. She is a leader in the field of uh, archives and was the 72nd president of the Society of American Archivists uh, uh, from 2016 to 2017. So we have two presidents on this plenary, pretty exciting. Um, she's the head of curation and preservation services at MIT Libraries, um, where I've been really delighted to get to know her. Uh, mostly in kind of planning this conversation today. Um, and before that, she was uh, uh, um, involved at the Inter-University Consortium for Political and Social Research, Cornell University Library, the Open Society Archives in Budapest, and the Center for Electronic Records at the National Archives. She is also an educator, and with Anne Kennedy, she founded and leads the Digital Management Workshop Series, which she will be bringing to MIT and to RBS in the coming year, so more on that. Uh, Nancy, Nancy's career maps the rise of electronic records and digital data, and I'm delighted that she will share some of her wisdom with us today. Her talk is called Making Digital Practice Work for Our Collections. Thanks. The long walk to the podium. Hello. 
It has been a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much to the organizers for having me. It's been a thrill to talk to you, Stephanie, about the, uh, we've had numerous conversations leading up to this that is only the start of things, I believe. So um, I want to put this over here, let's see. So my title emphasizes several things that are import important to me and I hope will be important to you. Digital practice. I'll be telling you what the term means to me. Um, there are a lot of terms that fly around the digital. We don't have an authoritative source for defining them, so we have to provide working definitions, so I'll share mine with you. Um, it's an applied field, so the putting, putting it to work is really talking about how we, how we use it in practice, what practice looks like. Um, in our collections, ours in the community sense, as well as in the individual and institutional collection sense, because we all end up with content that we have to manage and care for, but all of the content that we commit to preserving. And it's an explicit commitment to preserve in the digital, as it is in the physical world. Um, every time you say we're going to preserve this, it carries with it a long future <laughs> commitment to, to doing just that. There's two additional less obvious themes, building on a foundation of practice, which I'll share a bit with you, and considering where we are now. Um, we are about to do our 57th Digital Preservation Management Workshop next week at the Rhode Island School of Design, and we talk uh, for a week with people, managers of all kinds for in, in the area of digital practice, so um, it won't be that long right now. Um, but we can go pretty deep on that stuff. So I've tried to share with you some things that I think are important that reflect some of the conversations I've heard um, since being here and the conversations you and I have talked about. So on we go. In the spirit of Among the Disciplines, I'm an archivist who does digital preservation in a library. And all of those things turn out to be really important. Um, archives gives me a sense of the, the recordness of things, the, um, in, including in preservation, what have we done and how do we preserve the, the knowledge of what we've done to the content that we're preserving. Um, I do digital preservation. It's um, a 20-year kind of uh, development. I'll, I'll show you the seminal document that we date the digital preservation community to. 30 years of practice for me and 50 years of digital content preservation in the digital community. So, and in a library, which is very meaningful. Um, my special area is in Born Digital, and a lot of you I know are very deeply interested in, in working in digitization, so that may come up. Think about that when, when I'm talking and as we come up later, but by osmosis, I've learned an awful lot about digitization, so hopefully I can keep up. Um, okay, so down, down, um, so we're doing our next one. Da, da, da. So a brief footnote. Um, these are just fun, fun images that they're from the Danish Royal Library. And to me, they make digital preservation fun. And that's not always an easy thing to do. <laughs> so I've put some in and some other things. But basically, here we go. Um, so digital practice. This is what I think of when I think of digital practice. Continually working to bring content and lessons how do we do things? We don't just start each generation of technology from scratch. How do we bring content and lessons from the past for the benefit of the present? We don't just, we're not just always looking for the future. We, we're providing it now um, and then on behalf of the future. So it's a continuum. Um, we, it's, it's rolling ahead. It's trying to figure out, like, we have 50-year-old digital content that is still being preserved, that has not been lost, that is still taken care of. What we know is that when you look back at, at, um, at 
uh, practice, it begins to look quaint after five or ten years. It starts looking like, wow, I can't believe they did that. Um, but at the time, it was cutting edge. It was hard. It was something that had to be worked out and uh, figured out. And so that's what we see when we do this. But it's all got value. Um, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater is what we think about when we talk about digital practice and any other kind of community practice that's based in an applied field. So digital practice to me is inclusive, iterative, cumulative. It includes digital preservation, my particular area. Digital archives, which I think is what people are often thinking about when they refer to digital preservation. Um, digital archives is real-time activity to identify content, um, put it through a workflow, keep it. It may or may not refer to archival records, um, but for archivists it does. Digital curation, which is an umbrella term, um, we've had it less long than digital preservation, but it's inclusive of all the things we need to do around digital curation, tends to reach out more to creators of content and to users of content than digital preservation would, but they're all kind of holistic concepts. And data curation, which precedes computers by quite a long way. Okay, it's just so much fun. Here we go. A balanced approach, a holistic approach, um, and Kenny and I were responsible for this model, which has been in use since even before the 2003 publication date. But it's talking about what, what happens when people talk about digital preservation is they see it through the eye of technology. They almost get stymied by the technology, um, uh, distracted by it. We provide a management perspective, which is about the organization. Every institution that's responsible for digital collections has to make some choices, some decisions, some uh, stake in the sand. We are going to preserve this content. And that starts with the scope of the program that you're trying to do. Um, a digital archives, a digital program has to be able to say, I purport to be, um, in the case of ICPSR, Social Science Data Archive, the largest source of social science research data in the world, and then prove that it is. So some of these are all about the decisions that humans make. So uh, digital preservation is not a technology-only problem. Uh, humans are essential to it. We often hear things about we're trying to program the human out of the equation. It's a partnership. It's a partnership between the technology that produces content and enables us to manage it over time. So the humans are, have very vibrant roles, changeable roles. So everybody who's working in digital practice, people who create content, digitize it, all have a role to play in its future. Um, success is through community. I often say community as though everyone sees what I'm seeing, which is digital community. It's um, people who contribute content, who use content, who preserve content, who curate content, and have many other roles. It's necessary in a digital context to demonstrate good practice. We practice something that's called trust and verify. Um, the documentation allows us to show that we've done, shows the provenance, I've heard provenance come up a lot here, shows the chain of custody. We have to be able to say that this digital object is the, in what I received from the creator. Um, I can show you that it's not changed, or if it's changed, I can show you in what ways. I can show over time that the, this is what's happened to it. So when we think about um, a digital object, for, from an access perspective, you may only need a carry-on bag, but from preservation, you need a steamer trunk. Over time, you just keep filling it up with information about the digital content. I want to make sure that I don't race ahead and tell you things, miss telling you that might lead to some interesting questions later. So the stool is a really important concept. It talks about the what. 
Um, organizational is the leading leg. It's the, what is this organization trying to do? What is my digital preservation program, my digital program doing? The, that's a key to success. It's a key to sustainability. It's also a key to feasibility. We don't preserve everything in the world. We preserve the things that we need and want to. And that's the scope that um, sets up um, the boundary of what we need to try to do. Once we know about the what are we doing, we have to think about the how. Very often, um, I've had odd conversations for the last 30 years of, that I've been doing digital preservation um, where people say, we've got this technology and we're figuring out how to use it. It's a kind of a cart and a horse situation. You figure out what kind of content do I have to preserve, and then what is the best way using technology to do that. So the, the how um, enables the what to do what it said it's going to do, preserve this content. That gets you to how much. How much is it going to cost, and what kind of resources do we need to do it? That's the sequence that works for digital preservation. What, how, how much. It is so tempting for humans to want to jump to the how, and the how much before we figure out what. It's sort of like if you decide to buy a car and you haven't tried to figure out, should it be big or small? Um, you know, the success is based on what you decide um, the, the marker should be. That's what we're talking about with the, the three-legged stool. It has to be balanced. If you have, a, if it's out of proportion, it's, it's not going to be sustainable over time. It takes a while. All organizations and individuals need to learn how to do unfamiliar things, and digital preservation is often a, an unfamiliar thing to them. It also often happens in the background. It happens um, in, close to the infrastructure of an organization. It's, it, you can tell when it doesn't happen because things aren't preserved. But you know, at, um, the, the resource leg, the how much leg, often wants to say, what's the return on investment for preservation? And the answer is, um, I can show you in 50 or 100 years. I can't show you today what the return on investment is. It's something, it's an investment in the future. So all of these things create for um, interesting discussions. Um, and we have a long practice. I think what concerns people is it feels like it's new. So this is my effort to talk to you about some of the things that surprise people is that we have been doing digital preservation. We haven't always called it that, but we have been preserving digital content. Uh, content in digital form since the 60s. Um, National Archives, not only in the US, but certainly in the US, Australia, many uh, National Archives, uh, the Swiss National Archives, all jumped in early because they needed to, because they had records in digital form that they needed to preserve. Data Archives as well. ICPSR is one example of an early in. They started in 1962. So when I started at the National Archives in the 1980s, I was absolutely viewed as a latecomer to digital practice. Um, it was, you know, we've been doing this for a while, here you come. So now that's a perception that every new group that joins, and we're going to go through some of them, every new group that joins feels that their content um, is uh, special enough to them that the existing practice certainly can't have anything that would be helpful to them. There's a lot of reinventing of wheels, there's a lot of sort of getting acclimated, and it happens, but having been on the early end of it, I have watched all these communities join and hope that the next new one will sort of say, hey, what do we already know before we start down the highway? That doesn't typically happen. So it, we have this base of programs that really had to start, or the groups that are doing it, the National Archives, Data Archives, would have been irresponsible. It would have been um, going against their mission to keep the content that they promised to keep. 
In the 70s, well into probably in the 90s, you could think of it as the sort of the period of angst and anxiety. Um, there's not a lot of action on what we should do about preserving digital content, um, apart from the programs that I've mentioned, but the literature, certainly the archival literature, is just strewn with, you had to mention, oh my gosh, we're concerned about digital records, um, but we couldn't get much further than that. But there's a lot of it. You had to, it's sort of like compulsory, you had to mention it. In the 80s, we had a lot of digitization. The technology existed in some ways before that, but we had big players jump in in the early 80s, Patent and Trademark Office, and other players like that who really have a need to digitize on a large scale. Some companies, but they never tell us what they're doing, but um, some companies got in and, and, and were involved. We also, so we had big programs and we had big loss. What that led to is the part of why I ended up working with Ann Kenny is that she was one of the pioneers in getting at digital imaging practice. What does good practice look like for digital imaging? So we have this you know, emerging practice that leads to collections and a realization that the collections that we're building need to be preserved. So we get deeply into um, trying to, what are the challenges of digital um, image collections? And other digitization, increasingly at that time, we're starting to be aware that our analog film collections and others are going to be deeply at risk if we don't start converting them, having at least an option to have also a digital form. So there's a lot of effort going on in the digitization area. For libraries and museums, for the most part, the initial interest in digital was the digitized forms. Um, and the, what that means is, so digitized content often, not always as we know, often has the ability to go back and re-digitize. That's an investment, it's not something that we want to do, but because we have the option, unlike born digital content, there's a, something of the perception of a safety net that we can go back and re-digitize if we need to. That, and as we know, there's a lot of things that we don't want to do that and we shouldn't have to. But it does mean that we may look at the digital content in different ways, kind of treat it in different ways. Um, web collections came in in the, in the 90s. I love the kind of quotes from that time period of uh, technologists suggesting, you know, there's always great predictions into the future. Beyond about five years in technology, there's not really good accurate predictions, but a number of people saying, websites are a flash in the pan. They're not gonna last. So 20 years later, when we have the Internet Archive and a, and a real base of content that has been preserved all that time, um, or at least kept, um, and we have a lot of web archiving programs, we see that come along. That absolutely ties into the 2000s, where digital art, digital art has been possible since the 50s. It just wasn't really um, a substantial investment of a lot of institutions' time until websites really drove uh, global communities of artists, um, the ability to share art in other forms. It drove both the creation and the management and the use of those things. So digital art really comes in, in the digital preservation sense, um, in the 2000, geospatial, prior to the, t the um, advent of things like Google Maps. Uh, geospatial applications are very much specialized. They require specialized software, hardware, uh, maps, plotters. You may, if you were involved in, in those things in the past, that's what we were dealing with. And when you flip that and, and the kind of provider end has the content and you're at the user end, it looks very different. And so preservation looks very different. E-science was bit really the capacity to process 
high, like high capacity processing, it quickly led to research data as an outcome that's growing that we need to um, figure out scaling up to preserve. So we, um, research data has come very fast, very along. A lot of disciplines were not particularly dis, um, digital, not all that long ago. So we have a, uh, a growing awareness, a growing amount of information, and a, and a growing need to, to figure out what are the best approaches for preserving research data. Re research data understood very broadly. Um, and then analog archives. It may be a little surprising to see that analog archives follow so long after digital archives came as an early adopter. Analog archives have, as we know, an array of challenges that, are, that make it really possible uh, challenging to do large-scale digitization projects. Their form, their nature, their requirements, um, the scale, the perceptions of them uh, are different than some of the other collections that we've been able to get to mass digitizations on. We may, there may be uh, archival content that never gets entirely digitized. So we rely a lot on um, finding aids and we rely a lot on information about digital collections. So we're seeing this as a, we have this track record. What this should um, do is re reassure people that we have a growing set of, of content that has been preserved for this long. We also have a growing set of, of um, programs that have, we have a rule of thumb for preserv digital preservation of if someone has been preserving content for longer than five years, that's the start of a very um, solid track record. So we have a lot of programs that have a, a five year, a 10 year, not as many that have a 50 year. So this is the seminal work, I would say, for digital preservation. It's a 1996 report called Preserving Digital Information. Um, the co-author was Don Waters, who soon after went to the Mellon Foundation. It had a huge impact. Um, initially, it had quite a, a, a play, but at the time, if you're in 1996, we were, you know, websites were just kind of coming along. The collaborative work that's so much easier now was not quite there, but the fact that this had such a big buzz and internationally was a big, huge thing. It was also, also in an in interdisciplinary kind of way, um, was the first time that disciplines came together, archives, libraries, museums, and as much international as we could for this report. Um, as somebody who observed its, uh, its emergence as a thing, I, I, it was a, a, amazing to watch it. It was almost unheard of at the time. Uh, so it's big, it had a big impact, and since then, it has framed a lot of what's happened since. A lot of the standards went back to this report and encapsulated what was there and moved it forward. So it identified things that we still talk about right now, obsolescence. Technology um, does become obsolete at some point. It doesn't, it's not predictable, it's not like next Tuesday. That was the whole essence of my um, PhD project was on technology change and the community response to continually uh, be able to address technological change. It's not that you can predict like, okay, it's this thing is going to be out on Tuesday, 4 o'clock. Um, it's, a, it's a matter of it becoming less used, falling by the wayside, but from a rights perspective, it is not considered to be obsolete as a technology if you can still buy it on eBay. That has huge implications for preservation. It means that there's a lot of things you still can't do because you're not entitled to do them. So obsolescence is a problem from a from a three-legged stool perspective, it's a problem if you allow it to be. Good management um, makes obsolescence not a problem because you're continually handshaking to the next generation of technology. 
Migration is another thing that comes to us from computer science. It's something we know that we're able, we need to, and we're able to migrate formats and media from one generation to another. Most preservationists like me like to think about the handshake of the firm handshake from one generation of technology. We also have other um, strategies that rely on future effort, trust that future effort will be able to do things, and, and, and uh, thinking about things like emulation. Um, we can talk about more of that, but I'm not going to go further on that. It's just that we know that we have to act to move content from one generation of technology to another. There are always legal issues. Um, I mentioned some about the obsolescence of, of the technology we need, the technology it was created in, but life cycle rates, uh, rights are the thing that allow us to acquire, preserve, make available digital content. We often forget about the preservation rights, but a lot of what is in place limits copies, limits what we're able to do, the number of copies, what we can do with them and things. So preservation has a lot to do with, um, rights have a lot to do with uh, successful preservation. We don't get in trouble typically for what we preserve. We do get in trouble for what we make available. But managing our preservation rights should make the long-term access to content much easier if we explicitly address it at the start of the life cycle. Infrastructure was called out by the report. Um, it was acknowledged that there's a need for shared infrastructure. At that time, it would look very different than it does now. We were still, we still had computer centers, we still had local area networks and things like that, but it still is this, we know that we need a base of technology that helps us to do the things that we need. And most important, it called out the lack of a framework, which is standards and practice. So this is probably the area in which we have grown the most since the 96 report. We do have a foundation of standards and practice that are proven, that are managed by the community, which suggests that that, that it's a living set of, uh, a living framework, that it's not just been um, put in place and ignored. So it continues to inform and to help uh, preservationists do what they do in digital preservation. I wanted to focus on some examples of things that are transitions from physical to digital that I think, they kind of build on each other. Um, but they call out some of what we're talking about in this transformation that's been ongoing for some time. So in terms of finding aids, finding aids can be considered in some ways an example of archival scholarship. It is not always the case that archivists fall in love with their finding aids, but I certainly loved mine. Um, <laughs> you have to know the content, you get to know it. Sometimes they're really, they've done really quickly, but what we had was this base of physical finding aids that people's lifeblood went into. Their career was built on some of the finding aids that they did, and they, they just loved these things. And that we were dealing in a physical world anyway, so you carefully take out your finding aid and show people. So enter in automation. And the first step of automation usually doesn't get us very far um, from the, the physical thing. So the first step, encoded archival description, basically allowed us to reproduce more structured and, and, um, in a more structured way uh, kind of a printout of our finding aids. And that was like, wow, mind-blowing. It was just a step beyond, you know, I can't believe we got there. Um, and this is, I'm starting to get into digital preservation as this is happening, so a lot of these are things that I've observed, but, and it may sound, I know that there are corollaries with bibliographies and with cataloging of the ways in which people engage with these things. But there's archivists, this is what we do, finding aids. Um, 
now, when, when we're asked to put our descriptions, archival descriptions onto a, on a library catalog or into a catalog system, it feels like taking a three-dimensional object and putting it onto a piece of paper. Because there's so many different parts to it, and how do you do that? So here we are, we're doing this thing. It was a real struggle. So this is absolutely something where it was recognized that to scale up, we needed to transform, the technology helps. It's a very hard human and technological transformation. And that's the thing. The hardest part of digital preservation is the human part. The hardest part is getting people to understand and to participate and to help these things. Technologies only get implemented if humans take them up and use them. A lot of good technologies go by the boards because people, they just don't get interested, they're too hard, they're too scary, or they like this other thing better even if it's not as good. So here we are. We get to the point where we have a lot of finding aids. Th that's so crucial for archival and special collections because we may not, as I mentioned, you know, ever get to full digitization of this. And so having equitable access to a full set of finding aids in digital form that's easy to get to, that doesn't require a pickaxe to get into, is such a huge thing that we haven't even seen the potential of yet. So it gets us to digitization. Digitization has obvious benefits. It means that we can protect the physical object. It means that, in some cases, we can save the physical object. There's a, there's a definite sense of some of the films. Um, we have one shot to create a digital version, and we may never be able to use the analog film again. But we still have a copy. Um, it also means that we're not stuck to one copy in one physical location. It means that we can expand. And all these things are known. The other side of this, these are all opportunities and challenges. Um, the other side of that is there's some, some hurdles. The difference in size between a text-based file and born digital and the digitized version of it is huge. I hate that word now, I'm so sorry. We don't talk about huge. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, <laughs> it's big, bigly. Um, so, <laughs> but you, you know, like there's a big decision. If something was born digital, printing it and digitizing it is not a good investment. But that happens all the time. So we have digitized versions of things. And then there's the need to. So you have these large files. It's, they've estimated that it would take um, a, a nope, a petabyte of storage to, ha to have one copy of our digitized MIT theses. And in born digital form, it, we would be talking gigabytes. So um, very likely, maybe a terabyte. Um, so, we have this digitization thing, then, then we have the extraction problem. And um, if you're going to do full text, this is particularly challenging for archives because there's a big, I mean, the, the record copy, the complete and exact record is really important. In OCR, I have been attending, hearing, going to, learning about uh, OCR approaches for 20, 25 years more. They're getting better and better and better, but they're not at 100%. So there is a real challenge in having full text searching and having an extraction be not the correct piece of the record. To having it not be, you know, we don't, we, we just don't have a chance to get to the fully corrected version of these things. So, but it's great. We wanna have digitized copies. We wanna have this kind of content available. So here we are, we have finding aids. We have the ability to get to the content. We have some of it digitized and it's large. Um, so we're dealing now, we, in the past, we were dealing with things that are, you know, um, on the gigabyte scale, we're moving to petabytes and exabytes. So 
storage. It's the hottest topic in digital preservation right now. Preservation storage, from a three-legged stool perspective. What are the good decisions? What about confidential information? Um, how many copies? Where can they be? How do they, where do they need to be? Um, what are the policies in place? And the options. When we started to do a lot of our practice, it was before we could actually store our content online, store all of our content online. Now we need multiple copies we know in different locations, um, preferably not subject to the same natural disasters and problems, political and otherwise. Um, there's a lot of things to balance. So just one anecdote. In 1990, when I was at the National Archives, we purchased our, I mean, we were the envy of everybody we knew. We purchased a very cutting edge server. It was glitzy, it was, it was awesome. It, the capacity was two gigabytes, <laughs> and it cost $25,000. That's not, I mean, yeah, that's a while ago, I know that, but it's um, not that long ago. So the scale and how we're dealing with things and how do we get, how do we not compromise um, the practice to achieve a feasible um, approach to having multiple copies in multiple places that we can synchronize, that we can track, that we can prove the provenance of. So these are just three examples of the kinds of, of challenges we face, the kind of opportunities. And that was the purpose of my thesis, was to talk about, we often focus on the downsides of technology. Um, like, oh, how do we protect ourselves and how do we, it also has brilliant opportunities for how we can improve our practice, expand it, and do things like we'll hear next that we never really thought we'll be able to do. Okay. So thinking about some of the themes around digital practice and how it works for collection, um, it is possible, um, it's possible to achieve sustainability, and a group, uh, you know that I, I've mentioned that there are increasing numbers of programs that have a five-year track record, a ten-year track record, even even some with fifty. Um, what we need is metrics, so our standards now are able to say what you know, identify content, manage the content, um, demonstrate good practice. We have standards for all of these things. Success is is involves things like um, managing the content controlling it from the beginning, understanding it, making sure that we're getting it, that we are aware of it, but it's also coming in. It's not good, we can't just appraise content, we have to make sure that we take it in so that it's managed for the future. Um, we have to know information about the content. This is where, I mean, information about, that's what the steamer trunk reference, we, more the world is really familiar with descriptive information about content than in preservation information about the content. What are the preservation actions? How do we associate, this is the life story of this object. We got it in at this point, this is why we have it. Why was it created? Why do we have it? What's happened to it since we got it? Can we demonstrate that it is the thing that we said it was, that it hasn't changed, that there isn't been unknown and, and undesirable loss? So a lot of information about the, about the content. The copies in different places that we've talked a bit about, coordinating multiple copies in multiple places. This requires um, technology like above that so that I as a manager can look across and make sure we have enough copies, can respond to problems or risks that occur. There's a problem over there. How do we create new copies? That we're doing it from a master or a record copy. That we're not inserting error in, as we fix the things that happen with digital copies over time. We also have to deal with managing change, policies and technology. Locally, we could have, you know, the university decides to go from this perspective to that perspective. We also have technological change. So this is not a fixed thing. It's not, um, everything has to evolve forward. We, that means people's skills, understanding, perspective, 
implementing the technologies, not only developing them and putting together a combination of things that can work for the, the content that we have right now. Um, we can do this and we've done it any number of times. We could have in our digital preservation conferences, we have amazing debates about how many generations of preservation practice have we had and, and things like that. But it's, it's, it's evolution forward of what we're able to do and the effectiveness of it. It's also about managing expectations. The single biggest challenge of um, the single biggest challenge that involved with digital preservation um, is the managing of expectations around the stakeholders. So institutional repositories, even if we don't say we're going to preserve the content, there's an explicit there's an implicit expectation that the content will be preserved. If I put it in, it'll be there when I go back. That's a real challenge because preservation gets blamed for it if we, if we weren't in the partnership, if we weren't there when these things are happening. The, you can't change what people decide when they give you content. Their expectations are that you will always have it. When we make a preservation commitment, we, we can say that we will do that. When, it just, when content slides in, websites are a, a, a good example. A lot of the content that are on websites, immediately they go up, there's no author, there's no owner, there's no time, there's, you know, it's a, it becomes a challenge for how we manage our content. So it's about managing expectations, not only at the time of creation, but at the time of deposit, at the time of use over time. We have an obligation to um, work with the champions, the producers, the responsible parties for content over time to say what we're doing with it, even if they're not always interested. Turns out they're not always interested. So. We have, we, we have known practice, we have proven practice, we have um, transforming practice that is proven itself to be responsive to generations of technology. One of the things we see in the physical collection management world, which was always you know, side by side with um, digital preservation in my experience, the, the relevant disciplines were able to kind of work separately and individually. Whether that was good or not, it was sort of the way that it happened. In the digital world, the content and the disciplines come together. And that's an awesome thing and it's a challenging thing. We, have, we are often working at the same, um, like we have common interests, we just do things perhaps in a different way, possibly with some different outcomes and impacts. So figuring out how to work together, listening to the ways in which um, people use the same words in different ways. So this is the round table for um, digital practice. This is my version of it. You would probably add different kind of things to it. I'm not intending to suggest that this limits what the strengths of these particular domains are, but it suggests why we would want to have everybody at the table. The beauty of the round table, however Camelot turned out in the end, the beauty of the round table is that there's no head to the table. You have to decide how to go forward with an effort together, how to work together, how to achieve outcomes together. It is the case that we've, you know, not expecting, there's no, the more complex the digital world gets, the, the less likely it is that any individual for sure, even a small group of people will know everything that we need to know to figure out the problems and the solutions that we need to address them. So it is a case of being stronger together. There's absolutely common interests that are kind of easier to see because we end up, uh, we all show up at the same places, kind of looking at each other like, oh, I guess we're working on the same things. Um, users don't care about our disciplinary differences. They want the content. 
really reasonably. But how do we make sure that we're working together and not working at cross purposes? And we're, we're getting better. There's already some evidence of new services and new partnerships that are really reassuring. And then the other thing that's true that helps sometimes and confuses sometimes is that a number of the members of the digital preservation, digital community, the digital practice community are members of different disciplines. One of the things that is important in working successfully together is to remember what hat you have on for different conversations. I am an archivist who does digital preservation in a library, and when we're having different conversations, I have to remember which role I'm working on at that particular time. Okay, I'm wrapping up. So that's a, my review of digital practice. I'm really curious to hear about what kind of um, questions you have, what kind of discussions we can get into. I absolutely appreciate the invitation, and I have a counter um, invitation for you. Next year, um, in September 25th to 20, 24th to 27th, we're going to be co-hosting. This is a, a historic in itself. MIT and Harvard are, are co-hosting. It can happen. Um, we're co-hosting the International Digital Preservation Conference, IPRES, um, in Boston and Cambridge. It's going to be awesome. And I truly hope to see some of you there. And thank you for your attention today. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, our next speaker is W. Brent Seals, who is professor and chair of the Department of Computer Science at the University of Kentucky. He is a leader in the field of digital imaging, where his research focuses on two very different directions, uh, medical imaging and cultural heritage. Uh, as the director of the STITCH project, that's a great acronym, Surgical Technology Integration with Tools for Cognitive Human Factors. He is helping to envision a networked operating room of the future, connecting computers and surgical instruments. On the other end, is that is that still your acronym? Good. On the other end, we have another good one, wait for it, the ADUCE project, Enhanced Digital Unwrapping for Conservation and Exploration, uh, which seeks to create readable images of texts without opening them, using minimally invasive scanning and virtual unwrapping. You may have read about some of this work in the New Yorker or the New York Times, and I'm so pleased that he'll be sharing some of this with us today. His presentation is called Emergent Practices for Non-Invasive Analysis of Artifacts. And forgive us, we have to do a little technological uh, intervention of our own for the PowerPoint. Do you have a joke while the uh, projector warms up? It happened quickly, so maybe I won't tell it, or should I? I'm not in your community. I'm a computer scientist, but uh, I feel like an honorary member having been invited to speak to you today. There are 10 kinds of people in the world. There are 10 kinds of people in the world. 
those who understand binary and those who don't. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty bad. <laughs> well, you know, you come to a plenary not always with the title you want, but you come with the title you have. And uh, the title I had was Emergent Practices for non-invasive analysis of artifacts, but the title I really wanted was Reading the Invisible Library. I'm going to talk some about that. Um, but really, the title of my talk is Wrangling the Invisible Library, and that's just for you here today. Uh, because what I really want to do is define the invisible library as I see it, the breadth of it, the scope of it, um, my interest in it. Uh, and then make the case, make the case for working on it and um, wrangling the issues around the Invisible Library into best practice. Um, and there are some, some really interesting questions around this Invisible Library, a term which I um, shamelessly lift from the journalist John Seabrook, who wrote about the work in The New Yorker. Um, this work uh, was focused in this article around the Herculaneum scrolls, but I'm going to show you that um, focusing the idea of the Invisible Library on just Herculaneum, while that's really interesting, is too narrow. And so I hope tonight to make the case that it is possible to read a lot more, much more of the Invisible Library um, than we ever thought possible. And that's thanks to technology, and I stand here as a computer scientist, so I'm part of that. Um, and that we should do that. And it's also the case that I'm making that um, when we try to read the Invisible Library, we're going to find out that it's fraught with many unwrangled issues, and I think we should wrangle them, and I think we should do that together. Okay, so the Invisible Library is invisible for a reason. Okay, and the reason is that the items that are in the Invisible Library are the worst items in your collection. They look terrible. They, uh, we are all afraid to do anything with them. And most people believe that uh, the only value is that uh, they were there before you came and they should be there after you leave, right? <laughs> There's no other value in them at all. Uh, when I came to this problem, I did come to it in the early 2000s um, with the idea that I would uh, read Herculaneum material. And uh, that, that was close to my heart and big in the forefront of what I was working on because of uh, the, the canonical place that Herculaneum holds in all of our, uh, our minds. It's a classical library. We all know the story of the um, destruction of the library from the explosion of Mount Vesuvius. Uh, we all know about Pompeii, many of us have been there. Um, and those of us in this room, when we talk to our friends about the excitement of that era, um, we, we probably all have the same reaction too. Oh, oh, the humanity, but where's the library? Because that's really where I want to go. I want to read the books, right? And you can go find that library in uh, Santa Monica, California, of course. Well, not really. There's a replica at the Getty. Uh, but the library is the invisible library, largely. It exists inside these carbonized scrolls, some of which uh, were opened physically, but many of which still remain intact. So it's sort of a canonical example of the invisible library. And when I say damage, right, for trying to open these, I mean that um, if you try to open these materials, you will create fragmentary uh, results that uh, 
could keep many PhD students busy for many, many years to come in terms of reassembling the fragments and trying to make sense of the damage created by physical unwrapping and then uh, assembly uh, through, through any means possible. So first I'll start by saying that um, I'm going to make these three points, all right? First part of my talk. The invisible library exists, okay? There are objects that we used to think were completely and hopelessly beyond repair, hopelessly damaged. Those objects then, themselves, through technology, can inform us more than we ever thought they could about information that they contain. The technology's here, point two, and it's ready now. And the results that we're going to get from delving into the invisible library are important and very valuable. So I'm going to try to make the case for these three points. So first of all, the invisible library exists. Um, oh, and I have uh, an ulterior motive because I'm hoping that you are all going to help put forward the materials in your libraries and museums and collections that you know about as a part of the catalog of the Invisible Library. This picture is from the Dead Sea Scroll Collection, courtesy of the Israel Antiquities Authority in Jerusalem, Penina Shore. And it's thought that this fragment is part of the uh, Ezekiel Scroll, uh, based on other fragments that were co-located or had uh, chipped off. But it's impossible to know anything about what's inside this fragment because the physical conservation is really beyond possibility. Another example from the Greenwich Museum in uh, London is the Franklin Papers, which were discovered in the Arctic several years after the failed Franklin mission lost all men in the search for the Northwest Passage. Open question, what, do these, uh, what does, does this small sheaf of papers contain by way of any kind of writing from the lost party? From the Huntington Library in sunny California, we have a manuscript by Jack London thought to be preserved and safe, kept in a safe that ended up being part of the cataclysm of 1906, which was an earthquake and a subsequent fire. The carbonized manuscript now sits proudly on display in the Huntington, but the pages can no longer be turned. Ubiquitous cartonnage. Most of us have little pieces of it somewhere uh, because it's been distributed worldwide, but especially at Oxford University, notably in this photo in Dirk Obink's collection at uh, Christchurch, we have many, many pieces of cartonnage made from repurposed papyrus, which may contain really interesting text, uh, unknown as to how to um, extract that text. Manuscript 910, the Morgan Library. Uh, this is an early Coptic Egyptian uh, copy of the Acts of the Apostles in Greek, likely 4th, 5th century, maybe a little later, not sure. Uh, unable to open the pages because they're um, damaged to the point that they are interlocking and the physical conservation would probably destroy the binding, which may be the most valuable thing about this manuscript. It turns out the binding is a transitional one that is one of the early examples and one of the few examples of a certain technique. All of these examples are, for me, uh, making the case that the invisible library exists. Each of these objects contains more than we're able to get from just looking from the photography that we've talked about and the multispectral imaging that we've talked about. There are other techniques we can use to extract more information. So what is that technology? Well, I'm going to tell you that it's here, and I'm not going to do a technical retrospective because we wouldn't have time. And I do stand between you and cocktail hour, so I would not even try to do that. 
but rather I'm going to focus in on a specific technology that I use to, to great success and I want to show you a little bit of the development of that. So I'm going to talk about the scroll from Engeti, which is a scroll that was discovered in the early 70s on the shore, uh, western shore of the Dead Sea at a, at a town called Engeti. And that town is a beautiful oasis place uh, at the base of the Judean Desert and it is riparian and beautiful and referenced in the uh, book of 1 Samuel, in fact. Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines. He was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. And you can go to the spring and drink from the place where uh, the texts say that David and his men probably drank. Um, that discovery uh, was shelved in the archives of the Israel Antiquities Authority for, uh, for almost 50 years because there was no known technology to take the scroll from its damaged state and reveal anything about it. Three years ago, the, the lead uh, director of the Dead Sea Scroll Project, Kania Shore, met me in, uh, at the exhibit that she was opening in the uh, Science Center in Los Angeles, California, and handed to me a, a disk drive. And uh, on the disk drive was a volumetric scan of the scroll from Engedi. So I had never been to Israel to see the scroll. Um, I had no knowledge of how it had been scanned, but I had been given by Panina uh, a disk drive that contained a terabyte of data that looked a lot like this. So each of the slices of the uh, volumetric scan together in composite, made a complete representation of the internal structure of this scroll. Well, it just so happened we'd been working on this problem for a while, and we were ready with software to take a crack at doing the analysis of this data. Would there be anything at all we could tell beyond the structure of um, the, the, uh, the internal secrets that might be inside the Engedi scroll? What you're seeing here is a, um, a quick movie of our software playing, and this this screenshot of the software that we developed was what we used to take the data that was on that drive and turn it into uh, our best guess at something that might be uh, seen as actual writing inside this, this scroll. Our first approximation of what we discovered from the inside of the scroll is on the next slide. And it was clear that there was writing, it was systematic. It was clear it was a language that I could not read because I can really only read one language. <laughs> well, a little bit of French. I'm a computer scientist, right? We sent this back uh, as a draft result from the analysis that we did uh, from that disk drive. And in two days' time, I received this email from Panina Shore. Dear Grant, you won't believe what groundbreaking discovery you've made. It's still all hush-hush because we want to have a press conference about it next week. And you know that feeling when you're up really high and you don't want to fall? Well, sometimes you get that feeling about press conferences that are going to happen next week, right? What you have deciphered is the first chapter of the book of Leviticus. And it turns out knowledge that I didn't have when I got the disk drive. After the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is the earliest Bible ever found. We already have it carbon dated to 6th century. Actually, it was 3rd century. And if that's not enough, it's the first time ever a Bible's been found within an excavated synagogue. So all of that happened. The press conference did happen. Um, and you can see me by Skype because it wasn't time to go to Israel. 
Uh, Nina Shore in front on the left, uh, the original uh, archaeologist, Sefi Parath in the center, David Merkel, the, uh, the, the person who provided the scan on the right, and then me with my students, like little angels whispering into my ears the correct answers by Skype. And I do want to say that it was miraculous that Skype ran literally for an hour and a half without crashing. It was pretty miraculous. Uh, you know, what we hadn't really fully discovered because things moved so quickly was um, well, even the scale of the artifacts. So I have for you a, a, a scale replica that I just 3D printed from our data. I'm going to pass it around because the scale is remarkably small. I made my team check this two or three times because I just didn't think that we had the numbers right because we were dealing with all of the uh, images on the screen and you're largely... Uh, separated from scale when you're looking at those kinds of data. And I also didn't know how remarkable it was that this thing ever survived. It came from the uh, holy ark of an excavated synagogue, uh, 6th, 7th century, um, sacked, but uh, the scroll itself likely <coughs> younger. And um, this is the archaeological site, some of the, the pictures that Sefi gave me of the actual dig. What I want to, to do is just sh let you visualize the technology in a video with a little bit of voiceover, so I'm going to play that. Virtual unwrapping is by acquiring a... No. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm not going to send anything. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll just not, we'll wait for later to do that, the sending of the thing, yeah, I've always wondered about that. Um, I got a quick relaunch, so let's just see if we can play it. If we cannot get it to play, I will narrate myself. Virtual unwrapping begins by acquiring a three-dimensional volumetric scan of the damaged manuscript. This scan produces a set of cross-sectional images that show the internal structure of the scroll. When viewed as a 3D object, one can clearly see the individual layers of the scroll, but any text on the surface of those layers is obscured from view. In order for a readable version of the scroll to be produced, these images must be passed through our virtual unwrapping pipeline. First, we capture the 3D shape of the layers of the scroll in a process called segmentation. On the left side of the screen, the software moves through the scroll, image by image, tracing the shape of a single scroll wrap. On the right, we see the 3D model that this produces. Next, we extract the ink from the data in a process called texturing. Using the 3D shape generated by segmentation, our software makes another pass through the scroll, this time looking for very bright pixels. Bright pixels indicate regions of dense material, in this case, inks made with iron or lead. We now have a single wrap of the scroll with the text shown clearly on its surface. However, because the surface is curved, it's difficult to read all of the text from one viewpoint. The flattening stage of our pipeline converts this textured 3D surface into a flat plane so that the text can be more easily read. To produce the best results, these three steps must be performed on one small section of the scroll at a time. As a result, we end up with several texture images that must be merged together. This merging process creates a single consolidated image that shows the full text. Using this pipeline, we have restored and revealed the text of five complete wraps of the En Gedi scroll. The two distinct columns of Hebrew writing reveal the scroll to be the book of Leviticus, 
This marks the Engedi scroll as the earliest copy of a Pentateuchal book ever found in a holy ark, a significant discovery in biblical archaeology. I remarked uh, when I played that video last that I, I really enjoyed hearing my daughter's voice doing the voiceover, and um, someone got the wrong idea and thought, uh, well, has she, has she passed? And I said, no, she just lives in California. <laughs> so. I miss her. <laughs> so in our work with the Angeti Scroll, for the first time we pushed an artifact that was completely unknown all the way through the pipeline that I had been working on for almost two decades to construct um, from the acquisition phase, which in this case was tomography, all the way through to uh, the place where actual scholarship could take place. We published the paper in Science Advances, and I'll say more about that later and why um, it was important to go to an open source journal. Um, but I want you to have a little bit of a sense of the perspective of time about this um, because I'd started the work motivated by Herculaneum and the idea was that physical unwrapping for Herculaneum wasn't working very well so maybe there would be some way to digitally produce the texts within. And the first experiment I did was a medical experiment. so. The kinds of imaging techniques that are volumetric right, can also play a role for the invisible library, which is why it isn't that much of a disparate thing to imagine that I, I could work in both of those fields. I just want to show you the early experiment so that uh, from this medical grade uh, from this medical grade scanner you can get an idea of what the data might look like and what we uh, were sort of facing at the time. So let me... Uh, so this was the data that we collected from the original. Okay, it was one wrap. This should actually be playing as a movie and it's not. So um, this one wrap creates for you a very simple problem of being able to put all those things together. And it was a visualization problem that we had to solve because the scanner does not put the data into the right form, right, to be able to see the result. So we built all the software in the early 2000s to be able to take that one example from the scanner all the way through. So as early as 2002, and I actually talked about this at an SAA um, meeting in 2003 in sunny California. It was in Hollywood. And uh, when I showed this result, I, um, some people in the audience actually gasped, and I thought I had done something wrong. And then when I told my colleagues later that that happened, they just made fun of me and, and said they started calling me audible gasp. That's my nickname. But let me say that the first experiment went really well, and we were able to see from uh, just the scans, right, the result. So a second video that I want to play for you shows uh, some intuition about this. For thousands of years, people have written on scrolls. The scrolls can contain historical records, religious texts, or stories, but many of them have been damaged over time. For example, the Ayan Gedi scrolls found near the Dead Sea were in a building that had burned down, leaving the scrolls charred, blackened, and brittle. But since the Ayan Gedi scrolls would crumble to ash if opened, how can we ever unlock their contents? There is, in fact, a way to read scrolls without damaging them. Imagine for a moment that a baker has two types of dough. The white dough represents papyrus, and the red dough represents ink. Using the red dough, the baker can create a pie symbol on the white dough. 
When the baker rolls up the dough, the pie symbol is obviously no longer visible, just like when papyrus is rolled up. Imagine the effects of time and the environment are this oven, baking the pastry for a thousand years. If the pastry were still soft, the baker could simply unroll it, but now it would break and the information would be lost. The baker can, however, slice the pastry and decode the message from the traces of red dough in each slice. scrolls containing unique, ancient information to be both physically and digitally preserved. There are many ancient scrolls which are too damaged to read, but likely contain historically enlightening information. Digitization and virtual unwrapping allow us to view this otherwise inaccessible information. And my son did the stop motion as a high school project. <laughs> yeah. Two days, two days of shoot time. Two days. <laughs> All right, well, to finish the historical retrospective, we did work with Herculaneum material. And in um, the late 2000s, I scanned uh, an original Herculaneum scroll, an intact one at the Institut de France, and this is what the inside of a Herculaneum scroll looks like. For the first time, we were able to reveal the structure of a tortured Herculaneum scroll, one still intact. You can see the umbilical in the center, that's the high density, and um, you can see the wraps around uh, moving in and out of um, focus in terms of the separation in between the layers. And what you can also see is that we have a horrendously difficult problem here that I was not able to solve at the time because I was looking at problems like that in cross-section. And I showed you that video to give you an intuition about the cross-section, because now you have kind of an idea, like if I looked at it that way, that's what it really should look like. But that's what Herculaneum looks like, and it ends up becoming a really difficult computational problem on pretty much every one of these um, axes. Um, and of course, when we did the work in 2009, uh, the press was really interested in, in, in the result. What about the writing? Well, to this day, if you um, attach a single adjective to my name and then click, I'm feeling lucky, so Seals Steinmade, you will find an article from my local paper that basically explains to you that we were not able to make progress at that time. So it's a fun party game, maybe later, to add an adjective next to your name and see what comes up. So we can try that. All right, have I made the case that technology is, is here? Um, now I want to show you that it's actually important and valuable. Um, here's the timeline for the Getty Scroll. Um, it ended up being carbon dated to about 300 CE. And to put that into context, you see the Dead Sea Scrolls Second Temple period prior to that. And bisecting this interval between, say, the Chad Gospels, right, which is early Middle Ages, and the um, Dead Sea Scrolls, you have the scroll from Engedi. It's a period of quite a bit of silence, really. The scholars were incredibly interested in seeing this text, and so I was able to author a paper with Michael Siegel, the chair of the department in, at Hebrew University in uh, Biblical Studies, and Emmanuel Tov, emeritus, head of the Dead Sea Scroll um, uh, edition. 
And we, we supplied to them this image, and that was what they used to do their scholarship. And what they told us in their work is that this image to them is as good as any photograph of any old fragment that they had. And that was the bar that we wanted to reach, that we felt that if we could reach, then we could say to you, we believe the technology is, is ready. If we can get a 1500 DPI archival quality photograph, essentially, that scholars who are agnostic to the technology can use to produce this, which is a transcription and, a, and then a translation. Um, first chapter of Leviticus, the first column of that scroll. Second chapter uh, was the second column. And we were able to basically do a 5x blow-up for them to be able to do analysis on an image this big. Uh, and Ada Yardeni uh, kindly provided an appendix for our paper where she did handwriting analysis. So imagine that handwriting analysis, right, of an image that came from the guts of a scroll that's never going to be opened. And I know what you're thinking. Seals, it's great. You've made the case. But this is fraught, right? So in review, yeah, the technology is here and it's interesting, but... You're talking about the most fragile objects in the collection, objects that um, we haven't cataloged as candidates, and we're probably not going to. And there is no best practice, and there are very few precedents. Yes, it's all true. It's all true. And so I'm going to tell you why we should work on this together. I'll show you some examples that illustrate the chaos of not being yet in best practice, but the promise of being able to push through that. This is a manuscript from the cathedral at Chartres, outside of Paris. Uh, badly damaged, everyone's nightmare. If you take a look at these images, you can see that there probably will never be any physical conservation. But we had the chance to put one of these in the scanner, and I'm going to show you a visualization of the volume of that data. Volumetrically, we reconstructed everything inside that block of um, animal skin. And as I show you the visualization, here we're just pushing through and pulling back. Now I'm going to turn on some enhancement that will let you see what's in that volume at, at certain intensities. And then I'll rotate that around a little bit for you so that you can see that absolutely there are letters and there is writing sitting in that volume, right? Waiting for us basically to excavate that. There's no software to do this. There's no best practice around how to do this. Uh, there's no way to tag the stages that you would go through in terms of scholarly work, right, to capture every stage of this work. None of that exists yet. We have software for doing some of the science. For example, in the volume, we have to follow layers. And I'm not gonna, this is not a technical talk. I won't explain all that. Uh, and we have algorithms to do that. But surrounding all of that science, we don't have best practice for all of the steps, which involve finding that geometry, and then putting a texture on that geometry, and then flattening that geometry into something that's actually an image, and then ultimately reassembling them. Here's another example. This scroll comes courtesy of Randall Price from uh, Liberty University. It's part of their collection. It's thought to be an early Egyptian, maybe first century papyrus scroll. There's obvious writing on the outside. We were able to make a, a digital scan of the internal structure. And if I tip this up for you and you look at the top end, you can see uh, really, really interesting patterns that are all lined up as if they were writing along the scroll in one direction or another direction. Okay? Again, no team available anywhere in the world who can work on this uh, to be able to solve the problem of extracting whatever's there 
and then connecting it back to the original object and then making that available as some kind of addition. Doesn't exist. So, wrangling the invisible library. Let me finish by saying uh, there are some profound problems that I think are really interesting. I'm going to focus on just these two of provenance chains and comp competing claims. Provenance chain was mentioned by my colleague. Uh, if I scan something that is invisible to you and then tell you what it says and continue to keep it completely invisible from you, how much belief ultimately are you going to have, especially if what it says may be counter to what you believe? Um, we need to have a path that allows uh, a certification of the original data and then a, a certifiable chain of algorithmic transformations that go from the very beginning to the very end. And here's why, take a look at, this is from the Angetti data, if I start on a layer of animal skin, which is the upper left, and I end on a layer, and I've gotten off the path as I've tried to move through, you'll see a big black spot. If I've done it right, I'll actually see the skin all the way through, and there will actually be text on that skin. We should be able to actually verify that, right? It should be verifiable, open to um, inspection by our peer-reviewed community. And I actually wrote this in my paper, Ultimately, whole texts that are extracted non-invasively must be subject to independent scrutiny if they're to serve as the basis for the highest level of scholarship. So you can read that in my paper, and yes, trust, but verify. Thank you, Ronald Reagan and the Russians. So <laughs> we developed a, a provenance chain from every pixel of our texture claim all the way back to a region in the original data. And we made all the data for this uh, available. But you know what? Not everyone who's publishing in this area right now, because this is not best practice yet, this is emergent, is doing this. Here's another example of text that was claimed to have been extracted non-invasively. These are taken directly from a paper in Nature. And even more, uh, yeah, you know, you look at that, and I, I don't read Greek, and I don't know if pictoria is a word. I affectionately refer to the center middle, uh, the center bottom as hey. Uh, but you know, you can build things from data that look like this, uh, an alphabet chart basically that says, I think I found something that looks like this and that and that and build it together. But if you don't publish anything about where any of that was found in the data so that anyone else can go back, if you don't say, well, here's why I think I didn't find any other writing next to any one of these letters, right? then what we may end up having is uh, some specious claims, right? Because we can't do the peer review. So, for example, this claim now surrounded by examples that I've snipped from my own data, which I know are not letter forms, uh, makes us wonder because I think my letter forms actually look better than the ones that appeared in the paper. And I know mine aren't letters because I, I can tell what they're supposed to be and there's no text surrounding them. So it's really possible without a provenance chain. Does anybody know what this is? It's the butterfly alphabet, right? The wings of the butterfly. Oh, the beauty. The text? Well, maybe not so much, right? But we have the entire alphabet. And so we look at the data, and we realize that we need to have support for peer review if we're going to talk about the invisible library. We look at the data management, and we realize we need to have tools around that, and I put forward to you that we really do need to catalog our material to be able to think, is there a readiness scale for the current technology that would say now is the time? Non-invasive analysis is a fit. Do we have a safe handling plan? Can we transform something from 
uh, an item that we thought was junk into something that might end up being the very treasure of our collection and we just don't know it. Here's what's at stake. The Herculaneum Library itself may very well have more words in it than the entire corpus of all of Shakespeare if we only could unlock the, uh, the, uh, the invisible library. Now, I'm not saying that all of those words are going to be better than Shakespeare, although the Epicureans in the audience may think so. <laughs> but you know, that's an awful lot of writing. And Herculaneum is not the only part of the invisible library. There are other things. So we go from the emergent practice, hopefully, to good practice, and ultimately to best practice. The challenge in doing that is in the reading, it is, because the technology is not easy. But the challenge is also in the wrangling. And so I ask you, think about it. Things we do every day in our work, a lot of things are repetitive, they're not that novel, they're not that interesting. But some things that we get to do, you know what? No one has ever done before, yet. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Because 20 years from now, people are going to go, hey, what's up is this guy? I didn't have to go off of this stuff. It just happens. You see it happen. But when you go from one media to another, it is often good practice. I mean, whole like like an analog film to a digital copy, then people do keep those. But they often know that they might not be able to get as much information as they're doing. Thank you so much, um, Brent. Thank you for um, weaving the notes of caution around what might otherwise excite someone like me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know it feels like really kind of fundamentally responsible to like, thinking about this. I'm particularly struck, you know, thinking about the context of the Holy Land, for example, of the way that claims about what text was where when are often claims about what people were where when. And the potential for use and misuse in context well beyond your control or any of our control is frankly terrifying. Um, I, I guess in part what I want to ask then is for you to elaborate on the sort of what um, your view looks like. I probably want to ask Nancy what you would do with Brent's data. I mean, so A is the question here that all of this data needs to be stored, housed, and made available potentially for future analytical methods. And you know, something that I'm constantly reminded in my institution is that data costs money to store. Um, and Brent, is it, do you think it is more likely that someone in the future will have a better way of analyzing your data or a better way of scanning and generating your data or both? Yeah, I think absolutely everything is going to get better. Um, I'm interested in diachronic representations, so things over time, and um, aligning those things over time so that we can make a really quick analysis of what's changed in terms of the technology and how the object has changed. So that's why I think you know handling strategies and plans that say every however often we will revisit certain things because they're important to us and because the technology is going to change. I think those are all really important things. To your question about the, what would we do, um, we know how to study formats and how to come up with strategies. Sometimes they have to be preliminary strategies, and sometimes they can be quite confident. Um, I would say that the best thing to do is bring together a set of experts on various kinds of file formats, figure out what are the outcomes. They probably are varying since you're trying different things. So what is what what do we end up with? How do we characterize them? We know what risk factors are and how um, to, to go about them. These are really, you know, this kind of science and technology, we get very complex formats. Um, but we've had some success with very complex formats. Uh, Brent, that was amazing. Um, so my mind's kind of buzzing with uh, problems I don't see solved immediately. The internet <laughs> mechanism, the Artemidorus papyrus, all those things. Um, and, but then I'm also thinking, so the technology is ready, but what does that actually mean in terms of, uh, like, what is, what, what does that mean practically in terms of a library that has incunable waste that wants to look uh, non-invasively into bookbinding structures to, to retext it? Is this a, can we kind of uh, just go and MacGyver together some, uh, some scanners and stuff and do this ourselves here? <laughs> well, one of the reasons I wanted to give this talk for this community is that it means absolutely nothing if you can't have access to real material in archives, right? So, um, and I don't think MacGyver is probably exactly the right way to, to do it, although I've done a fair amount of that in my own lab. Uh, but I think we can find best practice by uh, 
evaluating you know, what is a good candidate for the current technology and move forward together, rather than just saying um, it's still all too risky that we just have to wait, which is really always the easy answer, but it's not always the best answer right, for uh, all people concerned. It is on speaking about that by nature. Um, uh, uh, this, this is possibly an incredibly naive question because um, I'm totally out of my, my period expertise. Um, but in the case uh, of uh, basically uh, this invisible library, uh, it, it occurs to me that sometimes some of the things that I'm interested in um, precisely in looking at physical objects, such as um, a page, are not mystic. Um, that, in fact, what it, what it is. Uh, Interested in types of blotches, lines, um, strange marks, um, possible that may, for instance, testify to either to um, errors, really evidence, or signs of use. Um, and I wonder you know, what the attempt is in this project to think about. Um, first of all, what's that defined really as a meaningful signifying mark on the paper, and what is noise? Um, so in this case, it looks like linguistic things that are recognizable as linguistic script seems to be non-noise and the rest is spoken out. Um, and uh, on top of that, then, then how different types of, I guess, um, possible signifying things are left out of the picture and the recreation, if that makes sense. Uh, if not, I'll try to clarify uh, either. Well, it is a different modality for, for seeing, and you give up some things because non-invasion is the, the goal. Um, and what you give up is the beauty of the visible image, the photograph that we have in spectral imaging. Uh, but what you gain is um, you know, new information. I, I think maybe, let me just say what one thing I see you're getting at is that it's crucial for this to be collaborative and interdisciplinary because a scientist like me can't understand all those things about the object. The object needs to be studied by scholars who understand um, all those things and uh, that adds to their scholarship. conference hashtag for me at least is mind blown. <laughs> uh, my question is that you told this amazing story, thanks to your kids for helping tell it. <laughs> um, but it's still, it feels like a very linear story that is told as like, you know, this is the TLDR, like I want to tell you about this exciting thing. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to process the parts that were like frustrating failures or a dead end or an herring and some things that kind of went wrong along the way, if any. Of course, if it came on fully formed, like Athena, that's awesome too. <laughs> well, no, I think you all know that research is not linear like that, and so all of that's been carefully abstracted away, <laughs> uh, tucked away for us to talk about over, over cocktails. Um, <laughs> But let me just say that when we were unable to uh, make sense of the data that we captured at the Institut de France in 2009, Seals Stymie, right, is part of that story. And that was a real block, and it, it lasted for a number of years. So uh, there has to be a certain tenacity in the work that we do. And you all are tenacious in your work, I know. Um, and most of all, these items are tenacious, having existed way longer than we have, for the most part, right? So. In terms of classification, would the results of 
um, Brent's work be considered born digital objects? <laughs> I would consider nothing to be digitized, um, but I would think of it as a transformation from the analog to the digital. Um, so, but, but you know, given that we, you know, I, I don't really believe in best practice. I believe in good practice um, because best practice requires a vote. Um, but I think that we're we also have to have some discussions about that. If it's the only one we can have, it becomes the record copy that it probably characterizes and digitized or work as well. Yeah, so this is a question, um, Nancy, in response to your talk. I was thinking about the kinds of records that you work with, and one of the things that I've been thinking about with the conversations we've been having the past couple of days is sort of literary versus scientific versus the format that the data takes. And I'm wondering if there are any specific challenges for digitization with scientific records that are different from digitizing other kinds of materials. And if you could talk about um, preservation and, I guess, disciplinarity in some sense, or if that's something that comes up in conversations that you have at MIT. It does come up. Um, I am, I, I, you know, full disclosure, I am a born digital sort of girl. Um, but they, um, we have a lot of conversations about digitization. The biggest thing that comes up, for instance, um, more than 200 collections in the archives have lab notebooks. Lab notebooks have a very crazy array of things in them. They can include data, they cannot. We have debates about whether they're data or whether they're things about data or things like that. In digitizing those, there are different approaches to trying to turn those into the forms that they, they, they look like what they're what they started out as. What is it that what is you know, there's the information, there's a good representation of the thing that, that is in there, and there's the better and lesser ways of doing those things. And there have been more and more successes at getting more data representations. Um, the relationship between scientists and the lab is one that is really interesting and complex. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of questions like that. We're dealing with the scale of born digital data in a much dramatic way, for sure. I'll just sort of make a comment. I think there's an STS project to be done about, about data at MIT and sort of Nance's, Nance's world, but then, of course, also about librarians and their relationship to their damaged materials because the, um, the sort of the, the lack of access to the Herculaneum scrolls is the greatest barrier to, um, to well, the dream of reading that particular library. So if any of you, you know, have any friends <laughs> in, uh, in, in, uh, in special collections, I think some of us do. Um, you know, uh, this is a this is a really huge area um, uh, in 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 my field in particular, right? As a classicist, um, the history of, of the book in my in in my time is so um, infinitely um, uh, minimal, and the physical traces are so uh, are so precious and so small um, that we we need everything we can get. Um, but it also kind of leads me to, to what might be a, a possibly a last question as I see that the time is, is dwindling, um, which is, you know, Herculaneum Library uh, is destroyed in, in 79 CE. This is what we've got uh, 2,000 years later. Um, what's, 
what do the digital archives look like in 2,000 years? And what do the, what do the material, what do the technologies for visualizing maybe look like in that, in that scale as well? <laughs> <laughs> the future of the past, guys. <laughs>